Right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Micah, chapter 3, there in the Minor Prophets, at the end of your Old Testament. Micah, chapter 3, we're going to read verses 5 to 12. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Amen. Now let's turn to... Acts chapter 13, and listen for echoes of this language that we've just read from Micah in the way that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, confronts the false prophet he and Barnabas are going to meet today. Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamis the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun 
for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. All right, well, everybody buckle up because we are launching now into a new major section of the book of Acts that stretches from here to chapter 20, uh, where Luke describes what have come to be known as the three great missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And this, this first missionary journey is going to cover, uh, one scholar adds it up to be around 895 miles. And that's the shortest one of the three. Uh, it takes place over one or two, one to two years um, in time. And this is a uh, time when it's especially helpful to have maps in the back of your Bible. Some of you have that uh, because there's usually one showing the missionary journeys of Paul, and you can kind of trace where places like Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and others are located. Um, this one is going to be the most kind of compact of the three journeys. Uh, in the other two, the later two, Paul makes it all the way out to Greece, where he visits Athens and Corinth and so on. But in this case, he's not going to get uh, that, quite that far west. He's going to end up traveling back and forth um, just right in the central part of what is now Turkey, which back then was referred to as Asia Minor. Uh, so the first missionary of journey of Paul. Here we go. This is really a significant turning point, um, not only in Acts, but also in the history of the church and really in the history of the world, because if you think about it, when, when Christians do foreign missions today, we always look back, right, on earlier missions efforts. And ultimately, we look back on the missionary activity in the Bible um, uh, the, the, of, the, of the apostles in Acts as, uh, for guidance, for information, for uh, models and so on. But, but Paul and Barnabas here, what are, what are they looking back on? To tell, how, well, how do you do foreign missions? What are they looking back on? This is, this is it. This is the beginning. This is the very first Christian foreign missions expedition. Now, you might say, well, Philip went to Samaria, right? And, and that's true. Um, there was that group of Christians that planted the church in Antioch. That's also true. Uh, and so there were these um, uh, initial forays into spreading the gospel into new places that, that's been characterized in the book of Acts so far, right? That gradual expansion. But now that expansion is about to tremendously accelerate through the Mediterranean world. This is something truly new. This chapter begins, really, the church's concerted effort to extend the message of Christ much more widely than ever before. Um, I say it's the church's concerted effort, although really, as we're going to see, it's not the church that comes up with the idea, is it? The Holy Spirit. That's why our first point this morning is going to be sent by the Spirit, verses 1 through 4. The second will be opportunity and opposition, verses 5 through 8. And then third, miracle versus magic, verses 9 to 12. So sent by the Spirit, opportunity and opposition, and then miracle versus magic. So first, sent by the Spirit. I want you to notice, first of all, where this uh, mission of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark starts from geographically. You might expect that the first great foreign missions expedition would start from Jerusalem, right? That would kind of be the natural way you'd think of it. 
uh, that epicenter of the church where everything we be, you, uh, where everything began. You would expect it to be the twelve people like Peter and John and Andrew and Matthew. You'd expect them to be the ones who would be heading up a major new movement in the church's life like this. But that is not, in fact, uh, what happens. It starts in Antioch. Remember from a few weeks ago when we were talking about the planting of the church in Antioch, um, how we said the objective of all missions is to plant what kind of churches? You should have three characteristics as the goal. They would be self-governing, having their own leaders, self-sustaining, being able to not depend on foreign uh, financial support, and they should be self-propagating, right? We want to plant churches that will go on to plant other churches. Because the Great Commission is the mission for the whole church, wherever that church is found. It's not just the mission of the original church. It's not just the mission of the mother church. It's not just the mission of the big churches. And it's not just the mission of foreign missionaries or church planters. It is Christ's mission for the whole church, which means that it's also our mission. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and we can stop there. That's the um, self-governing part, right? This church is, is able to send people out on mission because it is a mature church to begin with. It's a church that has gifted, qualified, godly leaders um, who, are, who are leading it currently. And you notice that these leaders in Antioch are from a variety of very different places, aren't they? Barnabas, uh, chapter 4, said that Barnabas was born in Cyprus. That'll become important later on because that's their first stop on the missionary journey, right? Um, Lucius is from Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. And then there's also this Simeon who was called Niger. Niger is the Latin word for black, the color black. And so if, uh, as it's very possible, that refers to his physical appearance, then he would also be African, right? And then there's Menaean, uh, and uh, it describes him as a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That word, um, it's a, a little ambiguous exactly what his relationship to Herod was, but it's likely they grew up together. Uh, maybe receive their education together, something like that. Um, at any rate, he has a very close connection to um, uh, the Herod, uh, not the Herod who just died, uh, who killed James. Uh, this is the uh, Herod the Tetrarch is referring to um, the uncle of that Herod, the one, and that's the one who was involved um, in the trial of Jesus, the one who killed John the Baptist. So an earlier Herod is the one this, this fellow Menaean grew up with. Um, the point of all of this is for us to see that there in the church in Antioch, the Lord has gathered together people from all kinds of places around the Mediterranean and from all different walks of life, right? From somebody like, like Paul with the, his background in the rabbinical school in Tarsus and then this person Menaean with his background in the, the court of the Herods and then other people in between. Now, let's see what these leaders of the church are doing as this mission is launched. What is the context for the launching of this mission? And the context, we find, immediately, is worship. And this leads us to a very important point that I want you to see this morning, which is that missions both begins and ends in worship. 
Missions begins in worship and ends in worship. It ends in worship because worship is what happens when new churches get planted, right? They worship God. God's worship is being extended to new places where he wasn't being worshipped before. That's the goal, for God's glory to increase. Well, not for his glory to increase, but for it to be further and further reflected reflected uh, throughout the world and uh, expressed in the growth of his worship in new places. But what we're seeing here in Acts 13 is that missions also emerges out of worship. Missions emerges out of worship. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. That is when the Holy Spirit leads them to set apart these missionaries. It's when the church has its attention fixed Godward. It's when our focus is, is on him, on his word, on his praise. That is the environment where the church is going to be taught and motivated and equipped and find the resources and the encouragement and the incitement that we need by the Spirit of God to move out in mission, in evangelism, extending the church to new places. Some people think that if we want the church to be more uh, missional, which is a kind of common word that gets thrown around. It has many different meanings. You have to be careful. What do you mean by mission? Everybody agrees the church should be missional because Christ has given us a mission, right? But what do you mean by missional? And sometimes, the way it's used, people are saying that if, if we want the church to be more missional, then we need to emphasize worship less and mission more. You guys care too much about worship and not enough about mission. So, uh, in other words, we need to be less concerned about what happens on Sunday morning and more concerned about just about everything other than that in the life of the church. Um, and while you can understand uh, some of the errors, the distortions of church life and worship that might lead people to that kind of conclusion, there's a real problem. A real problem when we pit missions and worship against one another as though there's somehow alternatives as though to give to one means that you're taking away from the other. It's not so, because what we're seeing here is that true worship leads to mission. And in fact, the only way we're going to get the church properly oriented in its mission is if we're properly oriented in our worship. We could also say that if our worship is not leading to mission, well, that's a symptom of a problem with our worship, right? We should take a good look at our worship to find out why that's the case. There's a reason that Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. These two prayers back to back, these two petitions back to back. And it's because when God's kingdom comes through the spread of the gospel, well, what happens? His name begins to be hallowed by new people. And furthermore, when his name is being hallowed in worship, What's going to be the result? Well, the result is that his kingdom will come more and more through missions as we together behold his glory and his grace and his presence. And therefore, in that way, we are transformed and we are moved to go out and share that glory and grace of God with others. Okay, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting then, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
I call this first point, sent by the Spirit. We want to ask the question, who ultimately sends the church on mission? The answer is it's God, the Holy Spirit, who does this. Remember what I've repeated so many times in this sermon series. Who is the main character of Acts? Who is the main character? And it's not Peter. It's not Paul. It's Christ. It's the ascended Christ on his heavenly throne. And throughout the book so far, how has Christ acted? Every time, over and over. Ever since Pentecost, Christ has been acting through the Holy Spirit. This is the, this is the whole message of the book of Acts. The ascended Christ continuing to reign and work on earth through his church, through the Spirit at work in his church. And now, once again, that pattern continues. It's the Holy Spirit who is instigating yet another leap forward in Christ's plan for the church's mission. He does this, the Spirit does this by identifying these uh, particular men that he wants the church to send out. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And so it's ultimately, what we're seeing here, it's it's ultimately the Lord who is calling these men to ministry, to this particular field of service. And by the way, this is still true today. It is still ultimately the Lord who calls men to ministry, and it's the Lord who sets them apart to particular fields of service. Any call that the church gives to ministry should seek to be, not on our own initiative, but it should seek to be a reflection. It should seek to be a public recognition of the Lord's call on that man's life. Now, we also want to recognize that we're not in exactly the same position in terms of history and the, the, um, the, the, the uh, history of God's plan. We're not exactly in the same position as these church leaders. Remember, they are still living in this foundational first-generation age where Christ is giving the church foundational new revelation on a regular basis. He is laying that first-generation foundation for the church. And that special revelation, you notice in the book of Acts, those special words from the Holy Spirit frequently come, in particular, when these major new leaps forward need to happen in God's program, God's plan for the church's growth. These new foundation stones need to be laid. And this is one of them, this first foundational foreign missions effort. So the wrong way to read this passage would be to say, okay, Let's look at the example here of how God wants us to find new missionaries. We all need to fast and pray and listen for the Holy Spirit to tell us who to send. No, that's an inappropriate application because it it misses that that difference in history, in the history of Christ's work and Christ's plan from that foundational age to this one. Now we no longer live in that foundational age, and yet there is still application for us here because we are still guided by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit. It's just that the means have changed that he uses. We are still guided by the Holy Spirit, not by extraordinary means like this special prophetic word, but by the ordinary means that he is committed to the church for all time. We go by his word. But to go by the word doesn't mean we're no longer going by the Spirit. No, quite the contrary. Because this is the word inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who was directing these leaders here. We go by the example, the pattern set 
in this foundational time as described under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us. And we trust the Holy Spirit also, not just that he inspired this word long ago, but we trust him that he's actively working now in the living present of the life of the church to equip the right people to give us as the church the wisdom to identify those people and to to set them apart. That's what ordination is, by the way. Ordination is setting men apart by the church because they show the characteristics that the word of God tells us that we ought to use to identify new leaders. So we still, like these people, we still ordain men on the basis of the Holy Spirit's word. Now, as we have it in the scriptures. Okay, now notice how there's kind of a, a, a twofold sending in verses 3 and 4. It says, Then after fasting and praying, they, the leaders of the church, laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 3. And so there you see the church does the sending, right? Verse 4 immediately goes on to say, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The church sends, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who sends. And the, the church is the Holy Spirit's visible agent, recognizing and uh, making public his work. Both things are true. The church is recognizing and obeying as Christ is sovereignly directing from heaven through the Holy Spirit. And that continues to be true today as well. All right, now, what happens next? So Paul and Barnabas go first to Cyprus. They're, they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. They, that's their first stop is Cyprus. And Cyprus is the, the great big island. If you kind of visualize a map of the Mediterranean Sea with Israel on the coast over there, and Cyprus is just off that coast. It's a pretty, pretty large island, but pretty close by uh, that coast northwest uh, of Israel. Um, not very far of a boat ride from Antioch. <clears throat> and you remember that Barnabas, again, was from Cyprus, so he would have known this territory very well. Um, and what they do is they cross all the way over um, this island from east to west, from the city of Salamis on the east to the city of Paphos on the west. And notice that they begin here by preaching in the Salamis synagogues. Um, and we'll see that later in Acts. This continues to be a pattern of, of Paul going to the synagogues first, preach to the Jewish community first, and from there extending the mission to the Gentiles. Um, but And we can see here already that their message, of course, is not restricted to the Jewish community because when the Roman proconsul, who's sort of the, the governor on behalf of the empire um, in charge of Cyprus, uh, when he catches wind of their presence and he wants to hear what they have to say, uh, they're more than willing to come and present the gospel to him as Gentile. Now, the second point I've called opportunity and opposition. And isn't that so often what happens in the church's life? God opens tremendous opportunity for the gospel to grow. But alongside that opportunity comes opposition. We come together. Newton's third law of motion says that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And you can certainly see here an opposite reaction to the preaching of the gospel, although, as we'll also see, it is not an equal one, is it? It's not equal at all. 
not equal to the all-powerful action of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So it says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So Bar-Jesus is his Jewish name. Um, He also goes by a non-Jewish name, Elymas, which is related to his profession as as a professional magician. Um, It seems that this fellow was uh, perhaps some kind of court magician um, connected with uh, the court um, who kind of had the ear of this Roman governor. It may be that Sergius Paulus used him as a kind of fortune teller, someone who could uh, supposedly read signs and omens uh, to direct the government what they should do to help um, the governor make decisions. It's an odd combination, isn't it? A Jewish magician. Uh, Since the Old Testament is pretty clear that Israel was to have nothing to do at all with the magical practices of the nations around them in Canaan, which were connected with their idolatry. And yet here it seems this man has managed to kind of blend things together. A little bit of Judaism, a little bit of folk superstition, And boom, you have a a career. You have access to the most powerful man on the island. This is what we call syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is when you blend together different belief systems and practices to suit yourself. Take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's it's the approach uh, today of people who say, oh, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious. Spiritual but not religious. A lot of people say that. No, you are religious. Everybody is religious. It's inescapable. It's just that you've chosen yours to be a syncretistic religion of your own concoction, drawn from a lot of different religions, drawn from the spiritual practices in each one that you happen to like the best, to resonate with, you find the most authentic for yourself or something like that. It's the same basic impulse self-centered religion of our own making. Let's think about this. What do you think would happen to this fella if if Sergius Paulus, the governor, listened to Paul and Barnabas and converted to Christianity? He'd be out of a job, wouldn't he? How often do you think he'd get invited back to the court after that? How much influence do you think he would have with the proconsul then? So he recognizes this, and he thinks, well, this is no good. So in verse 8, he says, it says he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This is another pattern you see many times in Acts, where Paul uh, gets into trouble with people who stand to lose money or power if people believe the gospel. And that's something that we need to be aware of as we try to look for gospel opportunities, as the Lord uh, is opening them up for us individually, for our families, for our church. Um, You've got to understand people are generally pretty happy to tolerate Christianity as long as it doesn't threaten the status quo. But as soon as people realize that it may actually change people's lives and that it may impact their own influence other other people, their ability to profit off of other people, that's when the opposition comes. That's what cannot be tolerated. 
So let's see how Paul responds to that opposition beginning here in verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, and we just want to note that change there. This is the first time that Luke uses um, Paul's Greek name instead of his Hebrew name. Saul's a Hebrew name, Paul's a Greek name. Um, he goes by both. But now, now that Paul is venturing out on this mission into the Gentile world, and now, in particular, as he is in the court of a Gentile official, Sergius Paulus, it's natural for him to start using his Greek name. And Luke is signaling that transition now in Paul's life work by starting to use his Greek name instead of his Hebrew one from here on out throughout the book. Um, and as an added bonus, by the way, he and the governor share the same name. So that's a kind of a nice point of connection here because it's Sergius Paulus. And so um, they must have smiled at each other about that connection. So Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, at the magician Bar-Jesus. And notice, um, first of all, the mention of the Holy Spirit again here. This is very important to see that it's not only the Holy Spirit who sent Paul and Barnabas out, it is the Holy Spirit who is actively with them, who is empowering them in the midst of their mission. And here it's the Holy Spirit who is confronting their opponent and who's about to act in, with supernatural power to vindicate publicly both them and their message. The Spirit does not just instigate the mission. He is the one who is ultimately accomplishing the mission as well. And he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Wow. What a rebuke. That's very strong language and eloquent in his his rejection of this uh, magician's opposition. I think the way... Paul phrases this under the Spirit's inspiration is very significant, too. First of all, the magician's uh, Jewish name, you remember, is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of salvation. Um, Paul is being ironic then when he calls him son of the devil, right? He says, you're not son of Jesus. You're not a son of salvation. You're the son of the opposite. It's like in John 8 when Jesus tells uh, the people there, if you were Abraham's children, You'd be acting like Abraham, but you're not. You're acting like the devil. It's showing that he is your true spiritual father. The rest of Paul's rebuke here gets even more interesting when we think about the possible Old Testament background. In verse 6, Luke describes this magician as a false prophet. Well, earlier, this is where Micah 3 comes in. We read from Micah 3, where Micah is rebuking what kinds of people? He's rebuking the prophets, the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. It's exactly what Elymas is doing. In that same context, uh, Micah speaks against rulers who who make crooked all that is straight. They make crooked all that is straight. He's making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Paul had Micah 3 in the back of his mind if the Holy Spirit, who is bringing it, um, who is uh, inspiring Paul at this moment, was bringing that passage to mind for Paul as he gave him this particular way of confronting this particular false prophet, of stopping his mouth, of confounding his plans. What does Micah say is going to happen to 
the false prophets that he speaks against. Back there in Micah 3, verse 6 says, Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. How appropriate then. A judgment that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, pronounces against this false prophet. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now that should sound familiar, not only because of Micah 3, it should also sound familiar because that is very much like what happened once before in Acts, isn't it? Apostle Paul, when the Lord Jesus defeated him in a different way on the road to Damascus. Acts 9.8 said Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand. Led him by the hand. See that connection between what happened to Saul and what's happening now to Elymas. That same darkness has fallen on this false prophet, but with a very different outcome. It doesn't give us any indication this leads to Elymas' conversion. But we should notice is that it is, his, it is his very attempt to keep the governor from believing the gospel that the Lord uses to convince the governor to believe. It shows the futility of this man's attempt to stand against the power of the Holy Spirit in the mission of the church, which cannot fail because it is the work of God and not merely the work of men. One more thing we see here is a great difference being brought out between the miracles done by Christ through the Holy Spirit and the magic of Alamos. Miracles are not another form of magic. They are in a different category entirely. They are the opposite, in fact, of magic. So magic in the Bible is people trying to manipulate the supernatural to their own ends to gain some kind of special insight or to get some kind of special power by going through the right motions and saying the right phrases so that they can get that supernatural power on their side. The miraculous work of Christ through the Holy Spirit that you see in Acts in the spirit-empowered things the apostles do, is quite different from that. Paul is not here saying the right incantation, going through the right motions so that he can somehow channel Christ's power to his own aid. No, this is about Christ as the primary agent here. Christ is the one acting sovereignly from heaven through his servant Paul to accomplish his purposes to grow his church, to keep his gospel moving forward in a way that no opponent will be able to withstand. What we need to see is that what Christ was doing then is what Christ is continuing to do now, today, in the church by that same Holy Spirit who sent out and equipped and inspired Paul. Our mission is the same as his and Barnabas's. It's the same mission to proclaim the same good news of a Savior crucified as a substitute for sinners so that everyone who believes in him 
will be able to receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. It's the same gospel now, and it's the same power of the Holy Spirit that's going to give that message success. It's not our power. It's not our personality. It's not our persuasive ability. It is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit of Christ, equipping the people of Christ to fulfill the mission of Christ so that the kingdom of Christ will continue to come throughout the world, and even right here in State College, Pennsylvania, until Christ himself comes in the end. So with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll turn to the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this demonstration of your mighty power that no one can withstand who would seek to oppose you and the mission that you are intending to accomplish through your church by the power of your spirit in your world. And Lord, we ask that you would give us confidence in the work of the Great Commission that you've entrusted to us just as much as you did to this first-generation church. And help us to be faithful in carrying it out with confidence in you and your power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.